Energy is a hot topic and a critical issue in politics, business, and society at large. And it doesn't look like this will be changing anytime soon. On the forefront of this discussion is clean energy, and particularly the rise of solar power technology. To get a better understanding of why this is the case and what that means for our world, we held a conversation on the future of solar technology with climate and energy expert Varun Sivaram. Varun authored the recent book, Taming the Sun, Innovations to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet, in a live conversation moderated by David Livingston, who serves as the Deputy Director of Climate and Advanced Energy at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. Varun offers insights on the innovations that are powering our world and the role America is playing in harnessing clean technology. As you're sitting across from me, from me now, Varun, you, you, you're sitting on this stool, but you've also sat in a lot of different offices. You've sat in a lot of different positions advising very important people on how they should deploy clean energy, on how they should think about solar, on how they should think about the policies needed to drive the energy transition. Tell us a little bit about your book and where you sit uh, and, and, and what it says about where you stand on the future of solar. Thank you, David. Um, I want to say thank you to, to Ivy for, for having me and for having uh, David here. Uh, and it's really, a, it's really a treat to do this. Uh, you know, David's the guy who got me into this field, into DC think tank world uh, three years ago, almost to the day. Um, and, you know, he, he's being modest. He didn't mention one thing that's become remarkably relevant today, actually. David was, for about two days, the number two official on trade in the Trump administration before he tendered his resignation. And, and you see the effects of that true. today. It's not quite true. You see the effects of that uh, in, in, in our uh, trade war that we just kicked off uh, with China. So, so um, I would love to tell you about how where one sits uh, determines uh, where you stand. Because in the area of solar power, I find that there are all these different conflicting perspectives on the future of solar. You know, the one thing that a lot of folks seem to agree on, because it's true, is that solar energy is by far the Earth's most abundant energy source. You know, more energy hits the Earth every hour than the world uses in a whole year. So if we had to pick a most promising clean energy source, that award goes to solar energy. The problem is there are these conflicting perspectives depending on what aspect of solar you work on conflicting perspectives on what the path forward looks like. You know, you see folks, uh, folks on the left will say, hey, solar is on a good path. We just need to continue the policies that have gotten it to where it is, continue to subsidize it perhaps, and, and it'll, it'll get there. Whereas folks on the right say, hey, solar is this boondoggle that doesn't deserve to be subsidized at all. The answer turns out to be somewhere in the middle. Similarly, folks in science will say, hey, the revolutionary new technology is all we're going to need for solar energy to become dominant, whereas the folks in finance say, look, we've got a bankable solution today with today's technology. That's the kind of stuff we should be investing in. Again, I think the, the answer lies somewhere in between. I've had the privilege of sitting in many of these different uh, silos, and that's why I wrote the book, to provide an even-handed and comprehensive take that takes the best from all of these perspectives and discards the worst, to say, look, even though it's true that solar energy has come a long way, where it is today, I, I wouldn't have believed it a decade ago. Costs have fallen by 90% in a decade. Solar is the cheapest, fastest growing energy source on the planet. It raised $160 billion in investment last year, more than any energy source, dirty or clean. I wouldn't have believed it a decade ago. And yet, I still think solar has way further to go than the distance it's come. And I think it needs to reinvent itself. 
So what the book argues is, in order to take solar where it needs to go, to continue growing on this hockey stick-like trajectory, rather than hitting a wall and stalling, turning into an S-curve, it's going to need three kinds of innovation. It's going to need financial innovation to source trillions of dollars of capital that it'll need to continue growing. It's going to need technological innovation so that tomorrow's solar panels look very little like today's solar panels and the costs can fall much faster than they currently are. And finally, it's going to need systemic innovation so that our energy systems, which are right now not very well configured to handle this intermittent energy source. Solar is super inconvenient, by the way. I called it taming the sun because it needs taming. Unlike convenient fossil fuels, which are dense and portable, solar energy is diffuse and it hides behind the clouds sometimes and it doesn't work at nighttime. Um, it is an intermittent, volatile, inconvenient source of energy that we've got to harness or tame. So I think systemic innovation is the third bucket of innovation that allows us to make our energy systems productively use solar energy no matter when it's produced or how much it fluctuates. You put these three together and you've got a chance at solar becoming, by mid-century, the largest power source on the planet, accounting for 33% of all electricity. And by 2100, accounting for a majority of all of humanity's energy needs, uh, final energy demand. Don't take my word for it. Shell just came out, the, the oil company Shell just came out with their ambitious scenario for how humanity can combat climate change, limiting warming to two degrees Celsius or less. And they found that solar needs to hit 36%, which meets my target of 33%, electricity by 2050, and 62% of final energy demand by 2100. That's an oil company saying that solar has to be the primary source of energy, not just clean energy. So, that's what I think we need. I think we need a whole new policy regime to get there, and I'm happy to talk more about it. Um, I, I warn that complacency could really put us in a position where solar hits a wall, it stalls, and we're too late at that point to innovate our way out of it if we haven't laid the groundwork. And we don't get a do-over this time. Solar's, in my opinion, the best chance we've got to anchor a clean energy transition and save our planet, frankly, so we better get it right this time. Um, that's the book. I hope you'll consider it. And David, you're awesome for doing this. <laughs> All right. Well, hold on. Not so fast. Let's go, let's go one by one through the three types of innovation that you want to see. Let's start with financial innovation. Okay. <clears throat> we're, in the, we're in the venture capital uh, uh, capital of the world. Um, San Francisco, Bay Area, Silicon Valley. Why, why is VC money not succeeding in getting solar deployed at the scale we need or getting the innovative solar that you want to see? What, why did it fail? Why did we see Solyndra go bankrupt? I mean, what, what's going on here? If it's so promising, if it's falling in cost, if it's growing every day, every year in deployment around the world, if it's subsidized, what, why aren't these VC firms flourishing when they invest in, in, in clean tech like solar? Look, Silicon Valley ha got burned a decade ago. Um, VCs invested in a big way in a range of companies. Solyndra, uh, that's the most notorious example. I worked for another pretty notorious example called NanoSolar, which when I worked for them was raising about as much money as Facebook and then went belly up by 2013. Um, you know, this morning uh, I was on uh, Michael Krasny's forum, which by the way, I'm a lifelong forum listener. This is like a dream. And Michael Krasny says, hey, Solyndra, why on earth are you supporting more investments like that? And one of the listeners called in and said, hey, I want you guys to know, Solyndra wasn't a failure. 
Or at least, you know, on a, uh, yes, it is the case that it went bankrupt. It is the case that it took $500 million of taxpayer money down with it. But Solyndra was actually quite an advanced technological company. And if the goal of the loan guarantee portfolio of the Department of Energy was to fund a bunch of far-sighted technology bets and expect several of them to fail, well, Solyndra did what arguably it was supposed to do, which was try its hardest, develop an advanced technology, and perhaps not make the cut. I think that going forward, Silicon Valley is going to have to learn from the failures of the last decade. The same model where you had venture capitalists funding solar companies and expecting the same kinds of VC returns and the same kind of VC time horizon, five years or less, isn't going to work. Going forward, we're probably going to need a larger range of investors. We're also going to need startups that don't go head to head with the incumbent dominant technology, silicon solar panels today. I was at Stanford a couple nights ago and I, I, I talked to a cool startup coming out of there. And their strategy is innovative. What they want to do is instead of going head to head with today's technology, what they want to do is find a niche market where they can start to scale up. That niche market happens to be unmanned aerial vehicles, which will pay top dollar for a flexible, high efficiency coating that offers a high power to weight ratio. So if you can go for an application that, I think the, that application pays them $250 or 250 times more per watt than a traditional solar panel application. That's how you might get some scale and get you know, panels off your production line rather than going head to head against today's dominant incumbents. So let's unpack that a little bit too then. What's so bad about today's dominant incumbents? I mean, why, why is it a bad thing that China entered the market in the early two, uh, 2010s, um, started producing uh, solar technology at mass scale? I mean, that's making everyone else's solar cheaper, right? If solar PV is becoming cheaper and cheaper, is that supposed to stop at some point? What, what exactly is the phenomena that you're, that you're worried about? In the near term, it's actually quite a nice thing. China went ahead, as you mentioned, and subsidized its domestic manufacturers in the late 2000s and early 2010s. And as a result, Chinese producers were able to dump a whole lot of overcapacity on global markets and put US firms out of business. Bad for US businesses, but great for, frankly, the global deployment of solar power, which suddenly became more feasible now that the cost of solar had fallen. Great in the near term, bad in the long run. The reason it's bad in the long run is I think the dominance of today's technology is locking out a superior generation of technologies. It's making it really hard for those companies to cross the entry barrier and compete. Now, you still may say, so what's the problem? Today's solar panels, I said it myself, are the cheapest, fastest growing energy source on the planet. Why do we need these new technologies? What scares me is actually uh, exemplified here in California. Um, you know, here in California, we get over 10% of our electricity on an annualized basis from solar energy. Now, a large reason that we get that large percentage, um, nearly world-leading percentage from solar is because of a mandate, a renewable portfolio standard, it's called, that's required utilities to procure a whole lot of solar energy. Well, we're actually about to be in between mandates. The, the 2020 mandate is something that we've largely hit in California. And so for the next two years, the mandates aren't constraining firms to make their investment decisions. And as a result, utilities have stopped procuring solar power. What that signals to me is that the economics of solar power don't actually make a whole lot of sense now that you have a lot of it. Because even if solar is cheap on a unit cost basis, the more of it you have on a particular grid, the less valuable that solar energy is. See, you could have a glut of solar energy right in the middle of the day. In California, in the spring, half of your electricity comes from solar at lunchtime. And the next marginal solar panel 
isn't really meeting a useful need. It's not giving you dinnertime power that you need. As a result, even though the cost of solar is low, when you have a lot of solar, the value can be even lower. If we want to outrun that effect, we're going to need radically new technologies to get cheaper way faster. So you ask, why aren't today's technologies good enough? Because they can't get cheap fast enough to outrun this effect where you have value deflating the more solar you have. That's why I like, uh, you know, I, I'm optimistic that if we invest in new technologies that could be lightweight, flexible, colorful, semi-transparent, that's how we're going to uh, enable dirt cheap technologies with fundamentally different economics than today's solar panels. They're still generating at the same time of day, though. We'll get to a question in just a second, but they're still generating at yeah. the same time of day, though. These, you know, the, the, the solar cells that you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not like they take the moon's light all of a sudden. They're, they're still solar powered, right? Yeah, so, so, so that doesn't solve all the problem, right? Okay. You could have technological innovation that makes solar super, super cheap. It's still got the problem that it's only giving you lunchtime power. Right. I think there are other technological innovations, though, for example, in concentrated solar power that takes the sun's rays and uses concentrating mirrors to generate heat. So you can then store that heat, for example, in molten salts and generate electricity 24-7. Or you could have technologies that harness the sun's energy to provide portable fuels like hydrogen. Or you can deploy batteries. I think there's a range of things you can do uh, to, to get around the fact that photovoltaics that instantaneously turn sunlight into electricity only work during the day. Still, I'm not done with solutions. The last bucket, systemic innovation, is all about making sure the value of solar doesn't degrade so quickly. So you, you basically got this two-pronged approach. On the one hand, you make sure the cost of solar falls really fast. You also want to make sure the value of solar falls really slowly, the more of solar you have. Because your goal is, even as you deploy more and more solar, you want the next unit to be economical. You want the next unit to deliver value in excess of cost. And to keep the value from degrading really fast, I think you've got to build a very flexible electricity grid, one that's able to productively use that power, even if it's at this inconvenient lunchtime hour. Let's do a thought experiment, though. Let's say you get your, your dream solar cells. So you could just print, uh, you, you know, dream solar technology. You can yeah. print it on an HP printer, you know, like you would reams of paper. Uh, you can do that at almost nothing. You know, it costs one cent to do. You can do it at essentially zero cost. At this point, you're just throwing throwing solar generation onto the grid, uh, theoretically, until the point when you just you don't care about having to shed excess solar power because it's just so cheap. It's too cheap to meter, as they used to say potentially about nuclear power, but it didn't pan out. The problem here that I have is if I'm a utility executive. What's my incentive to go pay to deploy this if it's going to collapse power prices in the wholesale market to the point where I'm not going to be able to recover the cost of, of printing it even in the first place, even if it costs me a cent? I'm, I'm, I'm cannibalizing my own revenues, right? So, so who's going to deploy this? Is it going to take a massive government program like the New Deal? Uh, or, or, is, or do you expect the private sector to do this even when they start staring down wholesale power prices that are collapsing? Now that's an insider energy question, so I'm not going to get too into the weeds, but I... That's a cop-out. That's a... Oh, okay. All right, David, let's go. Um, so, so, um, you told me you were going to give me softball. Come on. Um, so, so you're absolutely right. In this thought experiment world where we have super, super cheap solar, you might collapse our existing economic markets. 
That's why one of the things I write about in the book is economic market redesign. Mm -hmm. I actually think, for example, one cool idea is to split up your markets into two. One market is for electricity that's generated on an unpredictable or volatile basis. That's the market that solar, your cheap coatings or today's panels, your wind turbines, they compete in that market. And you wall that off from a separate bifurcated market that's for what's known as firm or dispatchable capacity. In that other market, that's where your generators that can generate power on demand are playing. Those guys can be fossil fueled power plants, ideally with equipment to capture their carbon emissions. They could also be you know, resources like batteries that can provide firm power supplies. They could even in the future, because we've got an internet of things that you guys probably know more about than I do, you could have customer demand that's so flexible that it can act as a virtual power plant. Yeah. Regardless, you've got a lot of controllable sources on this one market, you've got your intermittent uncontrollable sources on the other. And if the price collapses here, it so turns out that the price is probably going to increase. The value is going to increase of this electricity over here. And that's going to incentivize a whole lot more generators on this side to balance out some of the intermittency uh, from this side. So I think that market design, uh, market redesign can be one of the ways that we make sure we invest in the range or the portfolio of resources we'll need. I'm going to say something corny. I think solar should be the star of a clean energy revolution, but it needs a supporting cast. I'm seeing a thumbs down. Uh, that, that's not very nice. Uh, uh, all right. We, 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 we're, we've been in the future. We've been in San Francisco. We've been in California, the market leader, right? Let's, let's hop on our Virgin America jet. Let's fly back to DC mentally. We just landed in Trump's America. It seems like every day, Varun, we're, we're seeing headlines about coal is coming back, uh, uh, you know, new supports for coal and nuclear power, little enthusiasm for renewables from this administration. Uh, we see various different policy mechanisms being slashed, the clean power plan being rolled back. A lot of the progress uh, towards, let's say, the, a clean energy economy in the Obama administration ostensibly being rolled back. There are other people who say, this doesn't matter. The horse is out of the gates. Solar prices are already falling quick enough. Uh, this is going to have little effect, and the market will speak. Uh, who's right? Are, are, are they right that, that solar is going to survive this rough patch, or is that just fake news? There's a, little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of truth on both sides of this. So it is the case that President Trump is damaging the solar industry. You know, His tariffs are going to reduce deployment of solar over the next five years in this country by 10 to 15 percent. That said, remarkably, the solar industry is so strong that it's going to continue growing, even though it's got that uh, reduction in demand. So it'll just grow a little less fast. Mm. So in some sense, you know, the horse has already bolted. This is a funny metaphor. And uh, solar is going to continue growing because its economics are favorable, at least in the short run, before it runs into some of these barriers that we've just been talking about. I think those barriers, by the way, manifest in a big way on a global scale a decade from now. I think solar's actually got a nice glide path in the coming years to continue growing. Ideally, it only needs to glide through 2020. Um, and more broadly, David, you mentioned that there is a range of other energy and climate decisions that this administration is making uh, that may not be favorable either for US environmental stewardship or US energy dominance. Look, I'm using his words, not mine. You want to be energy dominant, it is a terrible idea to roll back fuel economy standards. 
because fuel economy standards help to insulate the US economy from volatile oil, uh, oil prices. So look, you can imagine I'm no fan of some of the policies of this administration. Uh, I do derive encouragement though, solace, from the fact that this Congress, congressional Republicans, stood in the way of President Trump's budget proposal to slash what I think is one of the most important budget line items, that for energy innovation, funding for research, development, and demonstration of new technologies. President Trump wanted to slash institutions like ARPA-E, uh, an innovative uh, institution that funds far-sighted technology bets. Congress stood in the way and actually increased funding for that and other line items. Let me ask you about one policy that actually seems to be a little trickier than, than, uh, than it might appear at first glance. The, the solar tariffs. Um, I think a lot of people in, in the community that, that you and I are exposed to were immediately critical of those. They said, this is a protectionist move. It's, it's too late. It's not going to do any good. That might be true. But let me ask kind of about the, the, the underlying thesis there. Should the US care where solar technology is being manufactured? And, and let's ask that from a couple angles. It, it, you know, do, is there a national strategic interest in that? And secondly, if, if there are no solar manufacturing jobs in the US, we're still deploying panels here that are made in China, does that kind of take away a, a, a certain um, a political economy group that's necessary to support this clean energy revolution? We saw how the fallout of manufacturing jobs, the, the carve out of vast swaths of, of the Midwest or the <coughs> Rust Belt from Ohio to Pennsylvania and beyond had reverberations in the 26, 2016 presidential election. Uh, do you worry about the same happening uh, with, with, with clean tech manufacturing? That's a super interesting question. I'm going to get to that second one um, in a moment. Uh, your first point, though, is look, you know, how much do we care where panels are manufactured? Um, earlier, I think we, we talked about how, hey, it could be a good thing for the world and for the United States if we just have cheap solar panels uh, at somebody else's dime. That sounds great. The problem here is not so much um, strategic, in my opinion, although maybe. In terms of US economic competitiveness and, and, and reaping the rewards from a rapidly growing market, why on earth wouldn't we want to seize a share of a pie that is worth $160 billion and growing every year? That's the solar, uh, total solar investment in 2017. Surely, we would want uh, to have some piece of this pie. And I don't think we're going to have any piece of this pie if we try and manufacture today's relatively commoditized technology, so we're not going to beat China at its own game. Rather, I think, if we've got a chance at manufacturing, it won't be through tariffs, it'll be through targeted support for brand new technologies that we're able to run faster on in terms of innovation capacity and manufacture here in the United States. Your second point is super interesting, though. I've never heard that before. Um, that because right now, uh, sorry, I'm rephrasing because if I do that, I might think of a useful answer. <laughs> right now, um, if the United States is not manufacturing solar panels, well, we don't have this manufacturing base that might very well be in the Rust Belt to support candidates who believe in solar power. It is the case, though, that we definitely have a whole lot of jobs in the installation and deployment of solar panels. Solar panel installer is the fastest growing job category in the United States. And that uh, is uh, you know, presumably providing some sort of voting bank for pro-solar policies. But are we, you know, is clean energy going to suffer because it doesn't have a manufacturing support base? I don't know how to answer that, um, but my hunch is, yeah, absolutely. And if we were to have a manufacturing base in the United States, those manufacturing some of these advanced technologies, 
then hey, perhaps the political palatability of solar might improve. Okay, one last point, um, if you'll permit me. Uh, I shudder to say this because I'm gonna get in so much trouble with the solar community. Frankly, no one knows what box to put me in because I say I'm a solar advocate and yet I argue that today's technology isn't good enough. And I have a piece coming out, it's, in, it's from the Brookings Institution next week, and it's a report titled The Dark Side of Solar, how solar's rise could empower political interests that may not advance a clean energy transition because I actually think that we may have opened this Pandora's box as solar became more and more, uh, as the solar industry grew in the United States, the political interests that now have been em empowered by solar support things that don't sound like the policy proposals I'm making in my book. They don't sound like support for innovation. They don't sound like support for a diverse set of power plants that are flexible and include nuclear power, carbon capture and sequestration on fossil fuels. Um, I think that the political economy of a growing clean energy industry is a fascinating topic. I'm not convinced that today's growing industries are going to support the policies we need to have a flexible decarbonized system. Hmm. The dark side of solar, huh? Coming out next week? I'm gonna get in a lot of trouble. Well, if not with the solar community, then definitely with Disney and George Lucas for <laughs> copyright infringement. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, uh, all right, um, uh, one final question, and then let's open things up a little bit and actually have a little bit more of a freewheeling discussion. Uh, but uh, what's- wasn't freewheeling. <laughs> You've got tougher questions coming, don't worry. Uh, we're in, um, you know, we're in California. Uh, we, we, we're, we've got a summit, a big, a big climate summit coming up in September, uh, which is Governor Brown's attempt to, uh, to signal to the world that regardless of what's happening in Washington, D.C., California's still in the game. Uh, California is a climate leader. It is, uh, it is designing very innovative climate policies, whether it be vehicle fuel economy standards, whether it be low carbon fuels and uh, second generation biofuels, biodiesels made from restaurant fats that would otherwise get thrown away and then get put into car engines. Uh, it's also doing a lot with solar, uh, as you noted. Um, a big part of, I was just in Sacramento yesterday meeting with the governor's staff, and it sounds like a, a big part of what they hope to do with this, with this summit in September is export California's policies around the world. They say we don't have to go through Washington, D.C. Yeah. anymore. We can fly straight to Beijing and yeah. tell them this is how you design your solar market if you want to see it grow like California's. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Can I uh, plagiarize from Hollywood again? I'm gonna say, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. And it's not actually clear to me that California is owning up to all of that responsibility. Um, you're absolutely right. California is a leader, and in this vacuum of climate leadership from Washington, uh, it has this opportunity to step up and demonstrate to the world what it takes to achieve a decarbonized system. And it's a leader on solar deployment. It's a leader because it's managed to achieve a cap and trade system and all the reasons you mentioned. But when I visit California, and look, I, I still feel like a Californian. We were both born and brought up here. But I can look at it with some arm's length perspective from DC. I see a whole lot of backslapping. I see a whole lot of triumphalism. I see a California that thinks it's solved all of the climate and energy issues it faces, but honestly has not. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, you know, California has this massive proportion of renewable energy that it's targeting, you know, uh, 33% by 2020, 50% by 2030. In order to cost-effectively integrate that massive amount of renewable energy, the best thing to do is to expand your electricity network to integrate with the rest of the Western United States. And yet that initiative has stalled three times in a row uh, for various uh, political reasons. 
Um, that's a case where California really is not leading. It's not demonstrating to the rest of the world, hey, if you want to be a super clean system, build a bigger grid. It's a really good idea. Um, the, the, the second area that, that concerns me uh, is this trend toward, oh, uh, the second area that concerns me is that we're shutting down Diablo Canyon, which is a terrible idea. It'll set us back 10 years. What's Diablo Canyon? Diablo Canyon's a, I was talking too fast. Diablo Canyon is a nuclear power plant, uh, the last one in California that's still operational. Shutting it down will set us back 10 years in terms of reducing California's greenhouse gas emissions. It's a, our largest source of clean energy. Uh, third issue. Community choice aggregation. Man, look, you grew up in Marin, which no longer is a, uh, you know, you guys are no longer customers of, uh, of PG&E, the utility. Um, and that actually sounds great on paper. You have something called Marin Clean Energy now, and you can do wonderful things. But the problem is the community choice aggregation uh, trend has created a whole lot of uncertainty uh, for our utilities, which at the end of the day, uh, we may rely on to make the investment decisions for example, digital upgrades, um, procurement of renewables, to create a system-wide, flexible, and clean grid. They can't do it uh, if their customers are defecting in mass. I think California is really going to have to grapple with this rather than uh, simply celebrate the fact that CCAs will leave 85% of Californians as non-customers of an investor-owned utility by 2020. So lots of issues to grapple with. I think California is legitimately a leader. I think September is a great time to trumpet this, but it's also a time for California to have some self-reflection and say, hey, we've got this responsibility to prove to the rest of the world how to do this cost effectively and uh, efficiently. That's our show for the week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast. Don't forget, for more information about the Ivy community and to find out about live events happening near you, visit ivy.com. That's IVY.com. See you next time.